0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I've never been to prison against my will. Um... i have been to prison. I just chose to go there. It wasn't, I wasn't forced to go there. We used to have prison ministry. And I'll, I'll never forget going into the prison and walking into the, I guess, the foyer. I don't know what you call the, the opening area of a prison. I don't know what that's called. But I'll never forget going to the back and this heavy steel door ka-chunk, closing behind you. And looking back and seeing that steel door close and realizing that, uh, wow, I'm not getting out of here unless they let me out of here. Uh, and that was low security, I mean, petty criminal type thing. I can't, I've never been to Alcatraz, uh, I know some of you have. And Alcatraz was built with one thing in mind, it was keep the worst of the worst as far away from people as possible. And now we talk about prisons like Supermax and things like that where, where people are kept away from the, from the general population. And as far as Alcatraz goes, it was pretty good. It's pretty effective at what it was built to do. Of course, the natural environment of Alcatraz was not at all helpful for people to escape since the island was little more than a rocky outcropping. There was very little opportunity for things to grow, for people to hide behind or to build rafts out of. The water was cold and rough, and it had more than its fair share of man-eating sharks patrolling the bay. A prisoner wanting to swim to freedom would have to swim a little over a mile in cold, shark-infested waters through strong currents likely under the Cover of darkness. That's a daunting task for anybody. The actual con- uh, construction of the prison was nothing but concrete and steel. The bars were considered tool resistant so that no saws that the inmates could potentially get their hands on would be able to cut through the steel. And then, of course, the prison had a rigorous schedule. All inmates were treated the same. There was no uh, high-profile inmates once they were in Alcatraz. Each prisoner only got out for an hour a day for exercise. Now that famous prison is nothing more than a tourist attraction. But it wasn't that long ago that it was the perfect place to restrain evil. We're about halfway through 2 Thessalonians, and, and Paul is again addressing matters related to last days. We discussed last week, uh, but the Thessalonians had gotten themselves worked up. They were afraid that they had missed the second coming of Jesus. Apparently, there were some concerted efforts taking place to make the Thessalonians think that they had somehow or another missed it. And so in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is reassuring them that they haven't missed anything. And in fact, he, he not only tries to encourage them that they haven't missed it, he actually gives them some things that it got to happen, some, some signs, some, some indicators that, that something, it's not there yet. Jesus has not yet returned. And so he points these things out. He talks about the rise of apostasy and rebellion. He points to a day filled with false converts rejecting the Christian faith. He talks about those, those people who claim to be one thing, but whose heart ultimately was not inclined to the things of God. But Paul also points to the general climate of the age, an age marked by rebellion and rejecting the things of God. Again, it's not hard to imagine this in our day and time. It could be generations in front of us, but we look around at the climate of our day and think, man, this this, this has gone downhill a lot lately. I can't put my finger on it, but it just seems that the, the moral climate of the day has has. Taking a toll. Um, And again, you don't even have to think hard, just read the newspaper. One of the most influential theologians of the last century, Karl Barth, he said, take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians here, he talks about a man of lawlessness yet to be revealed, the son of destruction, as he is described in verse 3. This figure, Paul says, will exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship, even claims that he will take the place of the one true God, proclaiming for himself that he alone is God. Now again, Paul here in 2 Thessalonians, this is not the only place that this individual is spoken of. John specifically talks about the the spirit of the Antichrist as both a, a future beast in Revelation chapter 13 and a more generic idea, pointing to anything that maintains a degree of hostility towards the things of God. As Paul explains, not just the Antichrist spirit, but he also points to that individual who will not just be opposed to the things of God, but one who will declare himself to be God alone. The church at Thessalonica, and by extension the church today, ought to be aware, ought to be on lookout for these signs as they remind us that time is short and the clock is ticking. And while we certainly recognize that this gross evil that is spoken of here is simmering, it's waiting for the time when it will boil over, Paul actually tells us something profound here. He says that evil is being restrained, that evil is being held back. And I'll be honest, if you just look at the last hundred years of history, it's hard to imagine that evil is being restrained consider in our last century the the horrifying military conflicts that have unfolded. Uh, Not not just wars, but wars that have been started by evil dictators seeking to conquer territory of genocidal events like the Holocaust or or even the Rwandan genocide back in the mid-1990s. I think of terrible terrorist attacks that have taken the lives of thousands, even in our own generation. We've seen violence in our streets, violence in our schools. Indeed, we've even seen violence in our churches. We see gross and rampant sexual immorality of the type that was unimaginable a generation ago. It may very well be that we are living in the generation where this restraint is being lifted, where our spiritual Alcatraz is being closed. So let us continue digging through this very instructive passage today about this time that we know is inching ever closer. This morning we'll continue our in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll pick back up in verse 3 and catch up a little bit from where we were last week. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3. If you're able, would you stand with me as I read these words from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse 3. "'Let no one deceive you in any way.' For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Verse five. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. Father, I thank you for your word, and even as it points to a future reality that we don't yet have and we don't yet understand, we know, God, that you have given us these things as a cautionary tale, as a warning, as a reason to keep our eyes open, May we do so with wisdom, may we do so with discernment, and may we heed the words of the Apostle Paul here and avoid the deception that we know is coming. Father, we ask your blessing on your word as it's considered today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, be seated. I don't know about you, but uh, I enjoy a, a good dystopian novel or, or movie. You are familiar with those. You've probably read some of the books or seen some of the movies. Uh, authors and screenwriters will frequently look to a future where, where civilization comes off the rails, Again, it's not necessarily hard to see today. George Orwell's, for example, his book 1984, uh, you've got books like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. They paint contrasting images of a dark future, more contemporary adventures into that dark future through Suzanne Collins' The Hunger Games. Paul here is giving us a picture of a dystopian future. However, the difference between what Paul is giving us in 2 Thessalonians is very different from what these authors and screenwriters have given to us in the fact that Paul is not writing fiction. Paul is writing fact. These are things that are going to happen. This is not his interpretation of things. This is not what he thinks has happened. This is inspired scripture given to him by the Holy Spirit of what the future is going to hold. Part of what makes this literature so intriguing is that the best authors are able to take subtle steps from today's culture to build some future world that is very similar but terrifyingly different from today. In 1984, George Orwell introduced us to the Thought Police. If you don't know what that is, it, it's, a, it's, it's part of an evil regime that seeks to restrict its citizens' freedoms to, to the point that people are punished for expressing their own ideas and opinions. And that regime actually exists today. It's called Facebook. Um, in A Brave New World, uh, Aldous Huxley points to a future where people are controlled by... Childhood indoctrination and constant consumption of happiness-inducing drugs. Again, that doesn't sound anything like what might be lurking around the corners in our world today. And of course, in the Hunger Games, Collins, (sighs) Collins places society's children on the chopping block as the ruling class celebrates their slaughter. Again, it's not hard to imagine the leap from where we are today to some of these dystopian futures. So as Paul writes, the discerning reader ought to see that the words he gives us, we ought to see them much like King Belshazzar and the inscription on the wall in Daniel chapter five. We don't know exactly what it means, but we know something is going on. We need a discerning eye to help us interpret All of this points to something very important, and that is this. The machinations of the end are very much in place. The the stuff is already in the works. The, the, The ability is already there. He says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work today. What's a mystery? Well, a mystery is something we don't fully know or fully understand. It's something we don't have all the information yet. And so we have this mystery of lawlessness. We don't fully understand what he's talking about here. We don't have a full picture of everything that's going to happen. But we can definitely see the spirit of lawlessness at work. We talked about this some last week. Now, again, Paul wrote this letter to a single church in a Roman province. They did not have the full picture of the globe like we have today. Paul was not able to get on on social media or the latest news feed and understand the full picture of what's going on across the world today. In, In this moment, you could pull your phone out, you could open Reuters or some other service, and you could get headlines from literally all over the world in this moment, in this place right now. But even Paul was able to point to these patterns, even to this single church that had limited perspective. Now, there may be dark corners of the world where we don't understand much. We don't really know what's happening much in North Korea today. That information is, is kept, kept away from us. But it's not hard for us to find that information for just about anywhere. And it isn't hard to see the mystery of lawlessness at work anywhere we look. And it really provides an interesting answer to the question, how could somebody do that? You ever had that question asked, you hear of some great evil or some great tragedy or some, uh, how in the world could somebody do that? How in the world could somebody go into a school with a gun and shoot it up? How How in the world could somebody sit through a Bible study in a church and when the Bible study was over, kill everyone in the room? How in the world could somebody take down an airplane and crash it into a building? How in the world could somebody do that? Paul gives us an answer. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The ground is actively being tilled. The, the, the work is in place. How much longer do we have? We don't know. There's still a mystery attached to it. You know, one of the benefits of reading the Old Testament is we learn that sometimes God takes a lengthy amount of time to bring his plans to bear. Uh, that's forward to us because we have such a microwave mentality. We want things to happen right now, immediately. We, we don't want to wait for it. If we can nuke it, we'd rather microwave it than wait for it in the oven. We want everything right here and right now. But when we read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, we see that God so often takes a lengthy amount of time to bring about his, his will. How many generations of iniquity did God, did God tolerate before bringing the flood to bear on Noah's generation? Go back and read the genealogies of how many generations passed before the flood became the outcome. How many years did the Israelites serve the Egyptians before Moses' final confrontation with Pharaoh? 400 years. We've not even existed as a nation for 400 years, yet the Israelites served Pharaoh for 400 years before God raised up Moses to come in and be the deliverer who would set the people free. How many generations of evil kings ruled over Judah and Israel? before God brought judgment to bear against those nations. Generation after generation after generation carried on in wickedness and iniquity while God waited to bring judgment against those nations. And we certainly don't know how long this will last, but we do know that God has a pattern of taking his time to allow iniquity to run its course. And frequently that means allowing it to sift through multiple generations. I think of just the changes that have happened in our country in the last 10 years as iniquity has been on the increase. And we've not even had a generation of this yet. How will our nation look in four generations or five generations as that iniquity has sifted through our civilization? It will be unrecognizable, no doubt. You may look around today as most of us do and say, man, things have gotten gotten pretty bad. But understand this. Paul has warned us, there will come a day that restraint is fully lifted. There will come a day that this spiritual Alcatraz that's been in place will one day close its doors and it will set the prisoners free. And I'm gonna tell you, that is a sobering thought. As much evil has been perpetrated in the world in the last hundred years, what if that is merely a shadow of what is to come? And it may very well be that we're beginning to see the floodgates open. We simply don't know. There's a mystery still in place. But it is important that we take time to be mindful, that we seek to be aware. In the book of Romans, Paul gives us a picture of this restraint, particularly when it is removed. Many have said Romans 1 paints a picture of the passive wrath of God, meaning that God doesn't have to send the flood to bring about judgment. All he has to do is let people act out of the fullness of their sin nature. Allowing people to function out of their own fallenness will have a catastrophic effect. Instead of restraining our worst impulses, God just releases us to do as we please. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, God releases them to the lusts of their hearts. And the consequence of that is the dishonoring of the body, the worship of the creature rather than the creator. In Romans 1:26, God releases them to dishonorable passions. And the consequence of that release is the prevalence of gross, immoral, intimate relationships and homosexual behavior. In Romans 1.28, God releases them to a debased mind. And the list of what happens is catastrophic. Romans chapter 1, verse 29 explains it. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Is this happening today? I can't say it's happening. At the same time, I can't say it's not happening because we see these indicators, we see these shadows. It may very well be that we're witnessing the full measure of God's Roman, Romans one wrath coming to bear from generation to generation, from nation to nation. And even though we don't have a timeline, ladies and gentlemen, we are still able to read the signs and be reminded that the ever-present clock is ticking. So we do recognize that we are working ourselves towards this dystopian future that is defined by evil. And at the center of this evil is some sort of yet-to-be-revealed man of lawlessness that Paul speaks of. As we recognize this, what sort of impact does this have on me as I go to work tomorrow morning, though? I mean, we're talking about last things, end of days. We're talking about something. Is that really gonna have an impact on me tomorrow? Well, it does me, because I work here. But what about you? I mean, as you go to your classroom, you may look and think, man, the antichrist is in this room, I feel him." I mean, what about you? Does it impact you tomorrow when you go to your job? I think it does. And one of the ways that it impacts us is this. We must be on high alert against deception. Paul specifically warns warns that there is a concerted effort to deceive those who are perishing. Listen to me, if you were in Christ If you love the truth, if you love Jesus, you're gonna be able to sniff out what's true versus what's false. And that's what the Bible promises here. If you're in Christ, if you love the truth, you're gonna be able to discern and tell the difference between what is true and what is false. But listen, your lost friends and family members are ripe for the taking. It's not hard to see how prevalent this problem is today and how much worse it could get. Why? We just went through a three-year field experiment on this thing called COVID. I don't dare make light of it. We've all lost friends and loved ones as a consequence of, of this disease. But just consider, masks or no masks? could ask for a show of hands. Vax or no Vax. Social distancing or no social distancing, bat meat at a meat market, or a communist lab? Which one is it? Well, the thing is is that we don't know. We don't know which one is true. We have our opinions, we have thoughts, we have ideas, we have the source here tells me this, the source there tells me that, but ultimately we finish these three years and all we have, comfortably, is speculation. That's all we have based on whatever source of information we glean from wherever avenue we glean it from. And it all boils down to speculation. At least with COVID, it was a rapidly evolving public health situation that we didn't know anything about. Three years ago, we acted out of the best what we thought we knew, what we, thought we, knew we could do. We might act differently today based on what we know today, but we were acting out of the best information that we had. However, in very short order, relatively speaking, we managed to get everyone entrenched in their own very different opinions based on conflicting reports that they got from whatever source that they trust. In three years, we managed to do that. We need to recognize, ladies and gentlemen, that our friends and loved ones are ground zero for great deception. Not talking about diseases and things like that. I'm talking about a great spiritual deception. And as Jesus followers, we have to paint a very clear picture of that which is true. As the mystery of lawlessness seeks to turn people away from Christ, we've got to make sure that we're doing everything we can to point people to Christ. There's a spirit alive in this world that is seeking quickly to rip people away from focusing on Jesus, but we as the church, as gospel-preaching Christians, must be pointing people to Jesus through the gospel. That is the only hope at this world has. All that's wrong in the church today is simply a product of these deceptive powers seeking to turn people away from the truth. And I don't dare make light of the scandals of sex abuse or abusive leaders or those, any of those other issues in the church, but it is clear that all of these issues have one purpose and one purpose alone, to deceive and to distract, to take people's eyes and hearts away from Christ and to make them hate the things of God. And Paul even points out the fact that some of this deception will be backed by incredible signs and wonders. Jesus warned against this in his sermon on the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 24. He said in verse 24, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect these false Christs, anti christs false prophets will be so compelling that if it were possible, their, their, their arguments could even lead Christians astray. But if we know it's coming and we recognize it when we see it, then we as the church ought to be a light that shines in darkness to rescue people away from these deceptions. You may be like me. You may hear all this. You know, I look at these dystopian things and I think, man, I don't want to be part of that. There ain't anything about the Hunger Games that I look forward to. Uh, You know, I don't want to be in 1984 where I've got a, a camera in my house that's monitoring what I say. Uh, I don't want anything to do with Brave New World where, where everybody's lumped into casts and everybody that, that has, a, has a problem takes a pill and everything's better. I don't want to be part of those worlds. I read this and think, man, I don't want to be part of this place where this, there's this great deception and there's this great evil. I don't want to be part of this. And maybe you even look at this and say, gosh, that's a little, that's a little terrifying. We need to recognize this, though. Verse eight, Jesus will be triumph will be triumphant over all evil. None of the things that Paul is cautioned about, none of the warnings that we have encountered. None of this is beyond the power and authority of Jesus. Even this one who is seen as the embodiment of the spirit of lawlessness, the one, this one who will show up on the scene and have false wonders and false miracles and false authority, even that one is not above the authority of Jesus. Even that one will not be able to escape the power and dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have any guarantees of smooth sailing though. In fact, in fact, We've got fairly consistent warnings that as followers of Jesus, we're gonna gonna endure trials and troubles and persecution. Jesus warned his disciples that they would experience troubles and tribulations, and we today are not immune from those things at all. But what we have is the ultimate guarantee that Jesus wins. Jesus wins over the tyrants. Jesus wins over the terrorists. Jesus wins over the mass murderers. Jesus wins over the child predators. Jesus wins over all of the evil, all of the wickedness, all that is wrong in the world. Jesus wins over death. Jesus wins. Man, if you're in Christ today, That's the team you're on. That's the team you're on. Psalm, the second Psalm says this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. For generations, the Jews thought that this king in Psalm 2 was David. But as Christians, we see that this king so much more clearly is not David but it is King Jesus. And while the spirit of the Antichrist may be intimidating, while the spirit of the Antichrist may have power, may have authority, may have the ability to do signs and wonders, the spirit of the Antichrist has no teeth because King Jesus rules from Zion. The mystery of lawlessness will stand exposed in his presence. The man of lawlessness will wither at his his word, and those who oppose him will be terrified By his fury, but you who are a Christian, you are secure in the hands of the one that makes the nations tremble. Rejoice in his good favor, rejoice and receive his abundant grace, and labor to bring alongside you as many as the Lord will call. Several years ago, I was getting ready to preach a sermon. The title of the sermon was Money to Burn. And we get these graphics now. We got this thing on the internet now that helps us make all these graphics. It's cool and everything. But back then we didn't have that. And so we had to be creative and come up with things. And so I thought to myself, I'd love to have a $100 bill burning uh, to to be able to use that as the focal point of of the sermon. And no one was willing to give me a $100 bill to light on fire for some reason. And so I thought, well, I'll just make a fake one. Uh... We just got a fancy color copier, and so I said, I'll just make a fake one and set it on fire and take a picture of it while it was burning. Now, I wasn't an idiot. I said, I wanna make sure this is legal. Uh, because there's a fine line between that and making a counterfeit copy. And so I look, got online and I figured out, I went, to the, I went to the actual Fed website like to figure out what I could do and what I couldn't do. And, and it said the rules were that if, if you destroyed it, well check, I was gonna destroy it, I was gonna burn it, uh, that if it was one-sided, not two-sided, and if it were bigger or smaller than a, a note. And so I said, okay, I can do all those things. So I got it, I was getting ready on the copier. I was gonna make it bigger. I was only gonna print the side with, the, with, the, with, with Ben's face on it and I was gonna burn it and that was part of the whole thing. And so I've, I'm in the copy room at the church. I've got the $100 bill on the glass. Y'all, I cannot make this up. As I'm about to hit copy, the copy machine repair guy came around the corner. Ricky didn't actually say this, but it's alleged that Ricky said this. Lucy, you got some splaining to do. <laughs> <clears throat> it looked like I was running a counterfeit operation. <laughs> I wasn't actually. I knew the rules. I was going to follow the rules. But to that fellow that came around the corner, I got a $100 bill on the glass Paul's portrayal of the Antichrist here reminds us in no uncertain terms that all of his work is a forgery. He talks about the coming of the lawless one. That word is frequently used in the scripture to talk about Jesus' arrival, the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. It's the same word. He talks about the activity of Satan. That word is used to talk about God's work in the world, what God is busy doing, what God is active doing. He uses that word to talk about what God's doing. And then, of course, he talks about signs and wonders. And again, signs and wonders are so frequently attributed to Jesus' ministry as though signs and wonders were the things by which Jesus' ministry was proven. All of these things point to Jesus. But here there is coming one who will will be a, a false Messiah, a false Christ. It is a counterfeit deception. It is a counterfeit arrival. It is a counterfeit work. And it is accompanied by counterfeit wonders. And there are so many people who hate the things of God that they will gladly go after the counterfeit. Men and women of the church, you better pay attention. Because if you're not watching, you'll miss this. But all the powers of this world are working overtime to call people to hate the things of God, to hate the very notion of truth to their own demise. Brothers and sisters, we know better. Therefore, we must do better. Because I believe this, I believe that this, the restraint, I believe it's still in place. I believe that that spiritual prison, that Alcatraz, is still holding back the darkness. But there's no denying that the clock is still ticking. Would you pray to me, please? Father, we are grateful for your word that paints a picture for us of what is coming. We do not have a full, complete, understood picture of that. We lack clarity in so many things. But God, in your wisdom, you have given us what we need to know and you have warned us in such a way that we can keep our eyes open and we can be mindful. Lord, we understand that we are living in a world today that is deeply broken. And there are so many different avenues by which people are rejecting the things of God that it's it's hard to even keep an inventory. And so God, we understand the mystery of lawlessness is at work. We understand the spirit of Antichrist is busy. We understand that there is great hatred towards the things of God. As your people, may our community be so different that people see through the deception. May our relationships be so categorically different from the relationships in the world that people will understand that there is something, there's just something different. And what they're telling me in this world doesn't match what I'm seeing from these people. May our churches... burn brightly with the light of the gospel. That in the middle of deception, in the middle of a hopeless world, there is hope in Christ. Lord, it's amazing today how hopeless our world is. Everything is despair and catastrophe. Everything is doom and gloom. Our leaders are untrustworthy. Incompetence is vast. But there is a king in Zion. His name is Jesus. And he gives us hope. May we keep our eyes fixed there. And may we be a gospel people who seek to bring as many along as we can. Guard us against our own deception. Help us to confirm in our own lives that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us to guard our families and homes against the infiltration of the evil one. And may we be a holy people in which you are well-pleased. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.